But I right. did learn, which I found very interesting, a phrase that I've heard over and over through going through mindfulness meditation classes that if, because people say, well, do I say anything? Can I say their name? Can I talk about it? Right. And what I've learned, which I think is so true, is if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Hey, family. I'm Coach Steph. And I'm Dr. Angela. We are the Grief Sisters. Together, we lost four family members in a seven-week time period. We know suffering. You may feel lonely, but you are not alone. Let's jump in. Well, hey, family. Welcome to the Grief Sisters podcast. I am actually going it alone today as a host because Dr. Angela is in the middle of moving to California and everyone knows how stressful moving is. So today I am actually chatting with a super good friend of mine who has an extra special place in my heart. How are you, Helen? Hi, Steph. I'm doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, and good luck to your sister moving. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's a big deal. The moving is never fun. She lived in California for years when she was in college and getting her doctoral degree and all the things. And she's the smarty pants sister, but moved away a few years ago and then got to move back. So she's really excited to do that. It's not easy right now and it's expensive. Well, and it's, I think, kind of fun too, because you can get rid of things. Oh, I love true. that part. That is so true. Well, you just recently moved to yes. a new house. How are you like to that? Oh, I love it. I literally wake up every day so happy I'm in this house. It's, it, the house found me. It was just a lovely way that I think the angels came and sent me directly to this house. And it was perfect. And it's Aww. still perfect. Even though I need to work, it's perfect. That's so great. I love that. For the listeners out there, I'll give Helen a little bit more of a formal introduction so you can know all about her extensive background with middle school students and adolescents. But I also wanted to mention that Helen and I play tennis together and we have a, a beautiful mutual friend, Kathleen, that I often talk about in the podcast. So shout out to Kathleen. Yay, Kathleen. Introducing Helen and I. And I know at some point I'll have Kathleen on the podcast as well because she has extensive knowledge and She's also done a ton of moving. Gosh, we should just do a podcast on the grief of moving. <laughs> that can be hard. That can be hard. Let's go ahead and tell our listeners a little bit more about you. Helen Aragon is a seasoned middle school counselor with over 25 years of experience in supporting and working with low socioeconomic minority students. Helen's area of expertise is adolescent mental and emotional well-being. She specializes in suicide awareness and prevention for both adolescents and adults. In addition to teaching mental health awareness during her career in middle school, Helen led different support groups centered around grief, divorce, eating disorders, children living with incarcerated parents, loss, coping mechanisms, and mindfulness using a technique treatment modality to support students suffering from chronic anxiety, Helen facilitated and led Sandtray therapy. For 15 years, Helen served on the DSMART District Stress Management and Recovery Team, responding to any statewide school crisis emergency related to the death of a staff member or death of a student. Helen is the mother of two adult children, and in her spare time, she enjoys playing tennis with me, traveling, <laughs> studying Spanish, and dabbling in being an amateur mixologist. First of all, for me and all our listeners, we want to thank you so much for your work with middle school students. You deserve a medal for doing that. And how have you actually been able to stay with middle schoolers for so long? Well, I actually love middle schoolers. I, in my years when I was first in getting my master's, you know, they make you do internships at different various places. I tried high school and I was, no, not my thing. I tried elementary. Definitely. I love littles. Don't get me wrong. They bring me a lot of joy, but I couldn't connect in the counseling sort of way. And then did middle school and loved it. Just 
it's a it's a interesting group because they are for those of you who have middle schoolers you know they're like 11 12 13 year olds and they're just going through so much their hormones are going crazy still kid like yet they're trying to be older and right. they're not supposed yeah. It's a great, it's a great mix and they're very verbal. So I love that. Oh, that's so true. You know, I, I think some listeners out there may have heard that I was, I dabbled in being a sixth grade middle school teacher for a few years. And I really love that age too. I think you said it really well that they, they do until they get to like halfway through eighth grade. Yes. They're pretty, you know, <laughs> like they're pretty open. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they say what they feel. They at least in an adult setting, I think that they still are, you know, are friend, friendly and friends with teachers and, and enjoy meeting with the counselor if they need to. And they're not afraid to meet with the counselor for the most part. Did you find that to be true as a counselor that they were kind of open to talking with you about anything? Yeah, they are. It's kind of shocks me because I'm just always in awe of them on how much they are open with unbelievable stories of their life and trauma. And I keep thinking when I was back at that age, I would never have opened up or said stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. So they are just very open, very, very open. And they do like to have relationships with adults. You know, they definitely love that. Yeah. So they do. They come in, they refer themselves, you know, to my office or teachers refer them or stuff. But kids, you know, they just seek out adults. They, they're looking for that trusted adult. Yeah. I think that a lot of people knock social media, and I know that there are negatives to that, but I do think that over the last few years, people talk health a little bit more, although I know that that's your platform to say that we need to talk about it even more. But I think that, that pe- kids are realizing that it is okay to talk about it and that if they can find that safe adult, that's really important. I agree. As much as social media was kind of like, it's like for a lot of counselors, it's, what would you say, like a thorn in your side because mm, it just mm. brings up so many problems and issues and things. But it also, like later on, I'll, I'll bring up a couple of things that I recommend for people to have on their phone that is on social media for help for kids to reach out or adults to reach out for, for help. So it is, it's like a double-edged sword. Well, I can't wait for you to give those recommendations because I think as we move into even more online spaces, to have an app on your phone where you can literally just press something and talk to somebody if you're struggling or if you're if you're really if you're really just needing that that type of support just to have you know one press where you don't have to look for it, it's gonna be really great. So we look forward to that. Yeah, and I'll share those later with you. But one of the really important things that all counselors, at least through APS, which is, you know, the Albuquerque Public School System, we are mandated to go in and teach about suicide awareness and prevention. Mm. And so I really like that. I don't know what it's like in other states, but I think it's really, really important because here on your grief podcast, I mean, suicide is something that it's so tragic and has so many layers of complexity to it. And so I'm so grateful, like we talk more and more about it. There's more awareness about it. Hopefully even through your podcast, more and more people will know about it. Yeah. So what are a couple of things, if you don't mind sharing that you teach students in that class? So we go into all the different classrooms. But in fact, I talked for years with our, our lovely friend Kathleen, because she was our health teacher at the time. And she and I would go in and teach, starting with sixth grade classes, just what are warning signs to look for when someone might, a friend of theirs might be feeling suicidal. And so we would talk about the verbal warning signs, which is which is what most people think of where they think people just might say it. Like some people do say it, like, I really want to die. So that's more of the verbal and that's more obvious. But majority of people are not that obvious about it. But most people they've found or have reported 
that have felt suicidal have said it in some way. So there's nonverbal ways, like writing things. I have one teacher in particular, a good friend, and you met her, uh, Pam Simpson, and she she would do a lot of writing. She was a language arts teacher. So they wrote poems and poems and all kinds of writings. And kids, believe it or not, in writings will put really sad things in there that are concerning. So she used to be a really good resource to refer kids and say, I'm concerned, read their poem or read their story. And then we would get kids that way. So we tell kids like to look, there's verbal signs, there's nonverbal. So there's the change in behavior. There's the withdrawing from their activities that they like. There's, gosh, giving things away. They uh, will give a lot of their favorite things away that kind of seems a little odd. Yeah. With social media, I found a lot of them now will do postings of things. They'll find things off the internet and post very gruesome graphics. So yeah, yeah. that they'll do drawings. We'll get kids who do drawings in their notebooks that a teacher will happen to go through because they turned in a notebook for something and there'll be a drawing of like a hanging of a kid, like a stick figure hanging. And kids are the best reporters and tell us things. That's why I'm like sometimes just in awe of them because so many friends really care. We'll just teach them like, here are warning signs. This is what you're going to look for. Since they're kids, they're kind of limited on how they can interact, but they can and the primary thing at the end of like our whole lesson is they just need to tell in a trusted adult that they're worried. We list well, who, are, who are your trusted adults. It could be a coach. It could be your counselor. It could be an aunt. It could be your best friend's parent or, you know, it, anybody. It could be a priest. It could be, as long as they're over 18 is what we say. They just need to tell a trusted adult so that it's the trusted adult's responsibility mm-hmm. to get help for their friend. I was going to say, I really like that idea because if you put that in their head in advance and they're mm-hmm. struggling, they're like, oh, we talked about my trusted adults or, you know, these five people or mm-hmm. these two people, they have a plan in advance. And I think that that might be a good recommendation maybe for parents to even talk to. I remember my daughter when she was in high school and I was telling her, like, you may not want to tell your mom everything, but you know you can talk to your aunt so-and-so, and you yes. know that you have a good rapport with your teacher, and you know that your grandma loves you no matter what you do. I would give her a few people that she kind of had on speed dial. These people are not going to share with me what you're telling them. It's a safe space for you, mm-hmm. and you have to give them that permission to share what they need to with somebody else and somebody that I knew would handle it the way I would. Yeah. And I, I love that stuff. And that's kind of what we try to promote is for parents or guardians to just talk to their kids about suicide, you know, bring this conversation up, go through a list of trusted adults. And it is because When you're really down and thinking of suicide, your brain, and we'll talk about that a little bit, Mm -hmm. can't come up necessarily with a trusted adult's name at that time. It's not thinking that way. If you're just like some part of your conversation with your kids that you talk about, you talk about safety when they're little, like you don't run on the street. You can't just, there's cars. And we'd say all these other safety things, but suicide's another safety that Mm. shouldn't be something that we don't talk about. It shouldn't be something shameful. I, working there for 25 years, I was amazed and still to the day I left, how many kids really suffer from depression, anxiety, and have had suicidal thoughts. Yeah, the numbers are surprisingly high. Um, Just a lot of kids hide it well. Uh, I love that you say talk about it to your own kids. Yeah. Talk about it. Bring it up. Tell them if they have friends, whoever. But you might be the trusted adult that your kid's friend could come to you. you know, uh, mm-hmm. Things like that. I like that. Yeah. I like how you said as well that that you didn't keep it a secret or that it's, you know, that it's not hidden under the table, this conversation, because we we do. 
say, honey, I taught you how not to ride your bike in the street. So I just want to talk to you about, you know, suicide because it's also as a teenager, it's a safety thing. I think that if you approach it in that manner, that can be really helpful for them. And yeah, and Helen, you talk to adults and students, you kind of brought up trauma and what it does to our brain a little bit. And so in talking to adults and students about trauma and what it does to our brain, could you take a little bit of time to tell our listeners and me how trauma really affects teenager or adolescent brains? Well, I stumbled across trauma and now I love any Anything, trainings that come out on trauma, I like sign up right away because I just find it fascinating. I find it fascinating because I know, I think it's become so helpful. Well, it did for me. And then I was like, wow, I should really teach this to kids. And then this would make sense because trauma, as we all probably have heard, at least adults have heard of how when we experience trauma, we have the fight, flight, and freeze response. Sure. And that is, I mean, a little description of this would be that part of your brain that it funnels to is called the amygdala. Let's put it this way. Our brains are designed to keep us safe. That is like number one primary goal. It is always scanning. We don't know it because it's doing it subconsciously. And so we'll go on with our day, but our brain literally is scanning nonstop. And it's looking for danger. And the minute it detects what it feels is danger or a threat, it goes into this kind of unconscious mode and sends a signal to your amygdala and it tells you you're either going to fight, you're going to freeze, or you're going to flee. One of the two. And when it determines what you're doing, because you're not determining it really, it's happening so quickly because it's designed to keep you safe, you start having all these physiological responses. What I like to teach kids is like because a lot of kids deal with anxiety my heart's racing I feel like I'm having a heart attack Mm. adults we feel that like you feel like you're having a heart attack your stomach is your gut is in a knot and and the reasons so I go into explaining like when you have trauma when when it detects trauma or threat I should say when your brain detects a threat it's really primal it was for the days when we used to hunt and You'd be faced with a saber-toothed tiger. It would see it. It would tell your body would do things. You'd run, get out of there, and you'd be safe. The problem with today, a lot of things, is your brain can't detect level of danger. So it can't say, like, your face with a tiger is any different than, say, me coming on this podcast and being nervous in the morning or something. It just knows, hey, my heart's starting to race. I'm starting to... My hands start to feel kind of cold. Your brain starts to race. And it's because all this oxygen is getting pumped. And this is what I tell the kids. Is oxygen is being pumped through your body so fast. It's trying to like get your blood going faster. It's putting the energy where it needs to be for you to run or fight. You start to lose, which I found fascinating, your peripheral vision. You uh, just become very focused because you're- Yeah, tunnel vision, basically. Tunnel vision. So when any of us are- with trauma, you just become tunnel vision. That's why, like you were saying, when you have that tunnel vision, your brain isn't going, who are my safe people that I could go to? Because it can't. That's not what it's doing. It's either you're going to fight, freeze, or, or flee. You get tunnel vision, and which is great if you're faced with like walking in the woods and you run into a tiger and you got to run. That's great. But it's what <laughs> doesn't happen. It's not what's happening when you're sitting in school and you all of a sudden have anxiety or you're dealing with a trauma response, it doesn't help you. So I try to explain to kids, like, this is what's happening to your body. It's just a normal response that kids get, adults get, or they work the same. And what's great is if you can get an understanding, at least for me, of why your body's starting to do this, then you'll know, then I can teach them, like, what they can do to help themselves dissipate those physiological responses because you can't but when someone is in total crisis mode i've been listening to your podcast like those early days when mason passed away if you were in fight flight and freeze mode and that's why when you said that lovely story about kathleen bringing you kleenex your brain was 
there's no peripheral vision for you. You were just walking around with that Kleenex and or the toilet paper and here you, you were super focused. So that's what happens in, in intense trauma and grief and things like that. It's nice to explain it because it then normalizes it for them. And they, then you can say, well, you're not having a heart attack. That's just your way that your body's prepping for you to, to respond inside. Yeah, it feels like your stomach, your gut is wrenching, but it's not. It's, it's actually sending all its blood right now because you don't need to eat when you're in this trauma-facing response. You need to run. So all your blood and everything's going to your hands and to your arms and to your legs so you can take off. Uh. So that's why your, your stomach feels that way because there's, there's, the blood's like going to different appendages. Uh. I think that, that that's so great that you teach that. And just even for the listeners out there, whether we're adolescent or small child or an adult, we do start feeling those tingles. We feel the the hollowness in our stomach or the flip-flop. And, and so, you know, really what I'm hearing you say from all of that is just by talking to your adolescent or child about these symptoms that they have and that when they have those symptoms, those are normal things that your body's doing to protect itself. You're not crazy, just as we say with with every all the time in our podcast, like you're not nuts for feeling the way you do. And you reference season one, episode nine for when, you know, when I talk about Mason and the loss of my son at 22 and how you, you were there when that happened, yeah. you were a part of my recovery team and to be able to recognize, like, take a deep breath. It is okay. Mm-hmm. I did. I had tremendous heart palpitations after yeah. And I even went to see a cardiologist because since Mason passed away of a heart attack, I was thinking, I'm next. You right. have these crazy, fearful thoughts. Right. And having people just recognize those and then having those five people that you can call and or mm-hmm. a button on your phone right. or take a deep breath or stand up and shake it out. Just those little tiny steps that they can do to to sort of slap themselves out of it in a way. Yeah, exactly. And, and so the more you like teach this, when they're sitting in class, you mentioned, you know, I did work in a low socioeconomic area, school. A lot of the kids come in with like, I like to give this example. It's, it's not mine. It's by Professor Dan Siegel who talks about flipping your lid. Uh And so I teach the kids this, and, and adults, because I try to explain, when your students come in, uh, if you go from like a scale of zero, one to 10, one, you're very calm. 10 is like, I'm blowing out of here. And then we have to call parents because your kid has just lost it. So what I do is if you look at your fist and you put your thumb in words, and then you put your other four fingers over that, and you look at your fist, that's your brain. And then if you, your thumb is your amygdala that I talked about. That's the thing that is scanning, scanning, scanning. So when that picks up any danger that lights up, then your four fingers start to slowly open up. And when it's fully open, that means you've flipped your lid. You are running out for school wise. You're like, you know, jumping out of your seat and maybe running out of the classroom and your anxiety is so high and it's just not a good, it's a really terrible day. A lot of our kids come in with their lid like halfway already open because uh-huh. they come from so much trauma. They've seen a lot of deaths. They have parents who are in prison. I mean, they have parents who aren't around or on the streets because they're on drugs. I mean, it's, it's endless what they have in their life. And so they already come and their lid is like, it's already three quarters open. And then they walk in school and someone says something and that's it. And then they flip their lid. What I do is like teach them when you start feeling like that stomach feeling like you're like, oh my God, my stomach's already feeling it. Some kids like start feeling it in their heart. I'll ask him when you notice, what do you notice? And they'll be like, my heart starts to pump. So I'm like, awesome. When you feel your heart pumping, that's when I need you to just start taking a deep breath. And then I teach them about breathing. And I said, and the nice thing about breathing is everyone's breathing. So no one in the classroom will have to know that you're taking a deep breath because 
as, as you know, middle schoolers, and I think you were going to ask me one of the questions is they don't want to be pointed out. You know, they don't want kids to know they're like taking right. a deep breath. Right. So I'm always like, everyone's breathing. So when the minute you feel your heart is racing, try to take some deep breaths. And then when you're able to see if you can get permission to come to the counseling office, you know, like so that you can do it in steps, you know, so you don't blow out of there. And so I find that when they realize, oh, I'm not crazy. This is normal. This is normal response to, to whatever's going on in their life. And I start teaching them techniques, like things that are helpful. There's different things. One is I tell them exercise. Exercise is a great and exercise can be anything. It can be just walking, running, going to the gym. A lot of these kids don't go to the gym. So it can be just getting up and walking around our track at school. And like, they'll come in and ask me, can we just go for a walk? It's like, yeah, absolutely. Let's oh, get that's out great. And walk. That's you really know? great. And what I love about exercise is I tell the kids, if you watch any documentaries with animals in the wild, like a National Geographic, and you see the the tiger is chasing a deer whatever is chasing and it finally gets away so it also animals have the same response they get into that zone and they flee because they got to get away but they if you notice afterwards they shake off that fight flight that's so true and we don't as humans don't do it so i teach them like that is how nature for animals get them so that all that stress hormone that's in Mm -hmm. their body Mm -hmm. goes away and then they're healthy and fine. We hold on and then that stress hormone that's released in that fight flight that kids hold on to all day long and night long and however long, it just builds up and it's toxic Mm -hmm. in your body. You do hear, you know, even especially elementary students and I would do it sometimes in the science classroom because we had, I was lucky enough to have a big classroom where we would just like let's get our wiggles out yeah. like yeah. let's just stand up and get the wiggles out and yeah. oftentimes we say that's where dancing can become such a release or absolutely you know, listening to your favorite music yep and I love that too unfortunately PE is not a huge part of the schools as much anymore at least in some areas and for them to be able to walk every day it was so important and, and really helpful yes um, Helen I wanted to ask you a little bit about adolescents not wanting to sort of stand out. And for my daughter who lost her brother when she was a freshman in high school, she really exposed her feelings pretty quickly that she wanted to be a regular kid. She did not want people to single her out for the girl who lost her brother. She actually had a a teacher who singled her out in a classroom setting and asked her how she felt about the five stages of grief. In it's front like, of the whole class? In front of the whole class. Oh, wow. And I bet that Natalie had that those exact feelings that you're talking <laughs> about. I'm like, oh, no. Really? Yes. Oh, and gosh. she immediately started crying, got yeah. up, and walked out. And yeah. if, if I remember the story correctly, or wanted to walk out. But this was very raw and a very, a very direct way of singling her out. Can you explain why some adolescents feel or want to feel just kind of like the regular kid? Well, I can tell you, and you probably know this too from working in middle school and probably high school, but elementary is different, but most kids don't want to be singled out, period, whether it's even for something positive, like they just get embarrassed. Uh, True. I mean, they get embarrassed, even if you want to praise them. No one at that age that I have found, in general, I'm generalizing, likes to be singled out, whether it's positive or negative. The way the teacher sounds like she handled it, it oh, it sounds like she's just definitely, the teacher's not def, is not trauma-informed <laughs> and has right. not had training because that, that just, yeah, she went into her fight-flight-freeze mode and that wasn't helpful. I know from experience, my nephew, my nephew passed away two and a half years ago and his younger brother, nephew also, also doesn't like to be singled out. And he also doesn't want to be known as like, oh, I'm the brother whose brother died. Like you get kind of labeled and like people are like, oh, 
oh, your brother's the one who died. And so it's an attention that is hard to take. We do, as I say, I feel we live in a very grief illiterate world. Mm -hmm. We don't know as people watching people going through grief or experiencing grief and death, particular death, don't know what to do or say. And so it sounds like that teacher did the, all the no's of what you don't do. I mean, talking to Natalie privately would have been much nicer. Just right. checking in when, when she returned, just to say, hi, I'm happy you're here. Let me know if you need to talk. But private, sure. you know, like done that privately. Sure. Well, and I will say, you know, this was not immediately after the situation. Uh-huh. I would, you know, I happened to be a teacher at the school and mm-hmm. I love the school and I actually enjoyed this teacher as well. But I believe it was the year after and okay. teachers sort of felt like enough time had gone. I don't know what her thought process was, mm-hmm. but at any rate, it, you know, it, it is really big validation that people carry it with them for a long time. And we Mm -hmm. want to be sensitive to how we interact with someone. Maybe thoughtfully say, would you, would you like to share anything about that? And if you don't, that's completely fine. Absolutely. Make it an option. Yeah. Having, having it be open. And Mm -hmm. you and I've talked at length about how people maybe do pull away from you when you are grieving because they don't know how to handle it. But let's shift gears a little bit because I definitely want to get to this question. I know that, as we said in in your bio, that you were very active in helping schools and school communities, in particular after a tragedy occurred, a death of a student or a death of a teacher. Would you share what that experience was like to be a counselor in that situation? We Unfortunately, we see this all over the news. It um, is spinning all over the country in large and small ways as, as far as, unfortunately, the number of students that were affected or teachers. From your counseling perspective, give us like a little window into that type of situation and how you guys go into just help mode, if you will. I have to, I'm going to put all like kudos to, again, Albuquerque Public Schools because what we have set up in Albuquerque, and this is not all in New Mexico at all, but actually in our school system, is we have what is called, it's called the D-SMART team. It's the District Stress and Management Recovery Team. So it's a group of us counselors who are, and nurses, and it actually can be anyone. So we do have some admin nurses and a bunch of counselors and social workers. We volunteer to be on this team. When we get a call which is very often kind of it also is surprising how many calls we get where there's a death of a student at say a high school. I would tell you what we do is we go into the high school. This is what a typical kind of day looks like. We go first thing in the morning so that we do a staff meeting before school starts so we can notify all staff all at the same time with the same information and let them know what's happened. Because of social media, a lot of them already know everything, but pre-social media, they would just find out that first thing when they came in for that meeting. So it's a kind of a shocking way to start. Then we tell, like, tell them what we're going to have. So what we do is we provide what we call safe rooms for students. And it's usually in the library or somewhere where we can house quite a few kiddos. And then the counselors are in there or social workers are in there. And we provide is what's called psychological first aid. What it is, is we're promoting safety. We're promoting calmness. We're promoting connectedness, seeing if kids are connecting with other kids. We're promoting like hope, you know, basic needs, which is huge. And the main basic need is you're like, we're literally like handing out water and crackers or granola bar or something like that. We're there just to listen. Help them connect with other people. And we're so we're, we're also triaging and looking for the outlier is what we're really doing too. So we're looking for the kid who's not connecting with any other kids in the room, the kid who maybe is crying uncontrollably and just cannot stop, the student who looks maybe really mad and saying very angry things, kind of lashing out. We then go to that particular student and we try to make sure that they have resources. Do they have someone they can talk to? We try to make sure if they are someone who is just 
crying and there's just, they're not going to stop crying because it, it triggered something for them. We call home, see if someone can pick them up. Also then give them all of our resources to the suicide hotlines, the crisis hotline, keep track of who's coming in. All the kids have to sign in. And then we make sure like their counselor at their school follows up with them if we're worried about something. As we know, just because a certain student dies or teacher dies, some people have no connection to that person. And they're not necessarily sad that, the, I mean, they're, I kind of want to say this doesn't sound bad, but that death can cause a trigger for someone who already lost somebody. Right, and right. Yes. So it's not like they're that, but maybe it triggers that their brother died. And so their whole, all their feelings are coming up. Basically in that safe room, we're looking for outliers. And we're also trying to create a sense of calmness and give resources and awareness. And it differs with age groups. When they're little, you do a lot of sitting with them and coloring and kids, little kids. They're so fun. I actually enjoy going to those schools in elementary because they just talk, 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 talk as they're coloring, you know. It's all age appropriate, but we just try to keep an eye. It's harder in high school because they can drive. So a lot of them like are upset and then they just leave campus, take off. And then you're like, whoa, we got to track that kid down, make sure someone can find them, a parent can find them or something. And so it gets trickier because they can leave campus. So we do that. And we try to create some sort of normal, try to get them back to feeling something, feeling of some normalness. We notice, can they start eating? Are they okay to go to lunch with their friends? Some kids just need their friends for that moment to cry and get it out. And then they're like, okay, I'm ready to go back to class. And they go back to class. That's our ultimate goal is get everybody either back to class or home or Mm -hmm. with counseling help, wherever they need to be. That's usually the whole day. And then at the end of the day, we usually meet again with staff and make sure we check in with staff. We also provide a staff safe room where they can come. We separate them from the kids. Because sometimes some staff members in their own grief, they mean well with every intention, but they're so affected by it that they want everyone else to feel as affected as they are. And so sometimes that kind of transference is not helpful. We try to keep adults and kids separate so we can provide counseling for adults. Then at the end, we meet again with the staff. We check. We do a whole scanning in the room as we're giving our spiel because there's quite a few of us usually there to see who's leaving. So if we see someone like leaving the auditorium or talking, we go right after, make sure they're okay. Are they safe to drive? Because everyone reacts differently. Some people are angry when something like this happens. And we just don't get get on social media because so much stuff that's not true also gets put out there. Sure, And we just teach them like, how to do self-care, to go home, call a friend, you know, what, that kind of stuff, you know, just a lot of self-care. I have to say, because oftentimes our Albuquerque public schools, they get a bad rap for various reasons, but it's such a relief and so encouraging to hear that our school system is on top of this. And I absolutely love that you volunteer for it. I know that with your empathy and your knowledge that you're you're such a powerful person on that task force. And I know that you're planning to go back to school after a year off. Is that true? Are you still trying are you still trying to go back to middle school? <laughs> Only middle school. I keep my eye out looking at what openings are happening. Yes, I did retire last May and I've had a fabulous semester off. I cannot complain. I've had lovely time. I'm thinking of going back in the fall, but it would definitely have to be middle school. And yes. And then go back to volunteering on the DSMART team. I'm also on the national level team, but I just haven't put myself out to go on that one. Just because doing the just APS alone was, is unbelievably busy, like shocking. Yeah. Well, shout out to the DSmart crew. We appreciate you. If you ever get a chance to watch this or listen to this podcast, we'll try to share it with those people that (laughs) might reshare and reshare because this is really encouraging as a parent. And we've had a family member or two in the middle school age range as well, extended family that have struggled. And 
to know that this type of thing is available before and after and encouraging students to reach out to your counselors that that the counselor job is a labor of love and I know that there are so many counselors out there all across the country that really work hard to create a safe space for kids. If you have experienced loss of any kind, you may be feeling overwhelmed and stuck. We get it. That's why we created RISE. It is an engaging five-step journey that you can take at your own pace that will help you get on the road toward healing. It comes with videos and a companion guide and easy actions you can try each day to help you to find relief. To join the RISE journey, head to thegriefsisters.com or check out the link in today's show notes. I wanted to ask you a couple more questions before we ask our final question to you. And you mentioned briefly that you have had grief in your life as well. And you've discussed a little bit about your nephew and what was his name? Just so that it, my nephew's name was Diego. Diego. Well, we think of you, Diego. We, we dedicate this show to you today. We know that your aunt Helen thinks of you often and, and loves you so much. So Helen, would you, if you feel comfortable, just tell us how being in, like what exactly maybe has helped you move forward when you've had grief in your life personally as a counselor? Yeah, well, I'll tell you, there's nothing like really learning without going through it. I feel like I was book smart on a lot of this stuff until it hit me personally. Uh, And then it was like, oh, that's what they really mean. Oh, that's why kids can't really focus and do their math when they're, you know, traumatized because someone got shot and killed. It's one thing to read and know it. And then when grief hits you, it's, it's a whole nother thing. Sure. For me, well, for a couple of things. So my nephew, it's only two and a half years. The time is weird. It feels longer, but in reality, it's only two and a half years. And he died unexpectedly. And He was 21 years old and just super close to this nephew. Love him dearly. I think for me, it was, you get into that mode, like, I was just like, I got to help my brother and my sister-in-law. And so you you get into that fight flight mode. So I'm like, I'm going to, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to set things up for them. I'm going to, I went on like automatic pilot. Sure, Um, sure. But then I realized I need counseling. So counseling was helpful. Also, I did so much reading going through grief. I hear you guys talk about it in your podcasts. I listened to so many different podcasts on grief. I read up, I got books on it. I just started doing stuff where all of a sudden it's like, oh, this is all normal responses that I'm having. It's not just a Helen response for me. It's like, this is what people go through, this is how it feels. I also learned what was helpful for me that people did. And that was like just planning things, inviting me over, showing up with food. Even if I said no, and I know I listened to, again, in one of your podcasts, it's like, oh my God, they did the same thing as I did. I would say, no, I'm fine. I don't need anything. And then still someone showed up. And then it was like, oh, that was lovely. I'm glad I did have that. I had a, a really good friend who, I mean, she, poor thing, she started dating her now husband. He must have thought he didn't realize he got into anytime he went on a date. I was pretty much always with them (laughs) because he invited me to everything to get me out because I was getting depressed and sad and just having a hard time. I went through a divorce and all that grief was awful. I just laugh now. I call him my vowed friend because when they got married, it was like, I don't think you realize you were also taking me on. Yeah, you know, you got it too for... (laughs) You got to do Yeah. Yeah. Because without her, I mean, doing those things, I don't know. I think it would have taken me longer maybe to get out of the grief. I mean, it's not like I'm out of it. It's just changes. And I love how this one guy worded it as like your grief changes from a level of grieving and pain to a grieving of love. I feel like now I'm in a grieving of love and I will always grieve for my nephew and um, my divorce was a whole grieving process, but there's just a different place I'm in. 
now I realize, Steph, that I do this to my brother, whose son was the one who died, and my sister-in-law. I realize I don't give them a lot of advance notice on an invitations because they turn it down. Uh, but if I do last minute, like, oh my gosh, I made so much spaghetti. You want to come over to my house to eat? And then my brother will be like, sure. Shows up and then like my kids are here or other, my other brother might be here. But I don't tell him everyone's here because I know he'll say no. Because mm -hmm. he, their first thing is to shut everything down. Well, I but hope we never the... listen to this podcast. <laughs> I know. You're tattletailing on yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, so then he'll show up and then they're both happy they did it. Yeah. They say, yeah. oh, if you had told me everyone was going to be here, we would have said no. Sure. But it's like just learning those kind of things. I'll just invite him. In. Sure. I, I, I won't, I don't say no. And I mean, it's not like I'm saying, I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just doing it in a way that I know that they're less likely to turn it down. Sure. So well, we know, and you know, we've yeah. discussed before on podcasts, podcasts that as someone who's has dealt with a tremendous amount of grief as well, yeah. that it's just easier to say no. It's mm -hmm. like, I've never really worded it that way, but coming from their perspective, it's like, oh my gosh, like I got to do my, I got to do all these things to get out of this house. And I really just don't want mm -hmm. to do anything. Right, right. And I think that it's a good lesson when I'm hearing you say like on both sides, as grievers, we need support and we give you, we are here. Helen and I are here to give you permission to say yes, to give you permission to go and have community, that that is so important. And for those people who have done a lot of inviting, maybe try inviting in a different way is really a good idea. Because I would say, like, I was opposite maybe than, than your brother. And people would ask me a week or two ahead, like, hey, do you want to do X, Y, Z in a week? And I'd go, Sure, I'll sure I'll try or whatever, and then I would literally forget that mm -hmm. I would, I, or I would think to myself, I can't even think that far ahead. Are you kidding me? I can't. I'm trying yeah. to put one foot in front of the other, and I don't even know if I'll get good sleep that night. So you 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 start to have this anxiety about just even saying yes to anything. And I've said before as well, like I didn't ever want to be the downer. You don't want. Right. You really don't want to invite me, right? I show up with like a box of Kleenex or a roll of toilet paper tucked under my under my like under your heart. You really don't oh. want me, and, and that would that would be my own project. I would be projecting that on myself. It wouldn't be necessarily what people are really thinking because right. they know, like they know yeah. with Steph, she's gonna come. She's mm -hmm. gonna bring something heavy. Yeah. potentially and y'all are gonna need my kleenex i'm gonna bring yeah i know and i agree with you i used to be like wow i'm gonna be i'm just either gonna burst into tears halfway through and or something and i mean you know when people are like what what are you gonna say how are things are going you're just like oh mine's gonna be depressing to talk about but i right. did learn which i found very interesting a phrase that i've heard over and over through going through mindfulness meditation classes that if because people say, well, do I say anything? Can I say their name? Can I talk about it? Right. And what I've learned, which I think is so true, is if it's mentionable, it's manageable. Uh -huh. I've heard that phrase. If, if you mention things, it makes it more real, more manageable for the person. So if we go around like you walk in, we don't say anything to you, those first few whatever months, anything about Mason and just act like nothing. Well, that just creates a really weird vibe. Sure. But mentioning it makes it more manageable. I mean, the more you can talk about it, the more people understand. And not that it has to be every conversation, but I just liked that phrase. Sure. I love that too. I think that goes for what you said originally at the beginning of the show is if we can just have an open conversation with people about suicide, Mm -hmm. mentioning it out loud maybe can make their feelings more manageable and right. mentioning these types of bodily functions or body movements or body anxieties or whatever you want yeah. to call them mention that that they happen to people makes that more like we can manage it if we talk we about can it. manage it if you talk about it sure. so that yeah when those feelings are happening to you and you talk about mm -hmm. it you can do different things, exercise, a mindfulness, and just be present, go outside, walk. Then it's it's just better. I do think we're getting 
I would say, I, I, I have to say my, this little quick story, but my mother had a sister who died by suicide when she was in college, the sister, her sister. Back then, you didn't talk about it, much less did you talk about suicide. Then they were part of the Catholic Church, so you couldn't even be buried in the Catholic cemetery oh, those times. It was bad. They live in a small town, so it was just awful the way it was all handled. So the way they did it is you never talked about this aunt, like, at all. We couldn't even say her name. We, nothing. So that's how I grew up. I thought that's what you did. When people died, you just don't talk about it. And it wasn't until I was like in college and someone had a brother who passed and they would talk about their brother and mention them and all this stuff. And I was just like, oh my God, you can talk about it? She was like, yeah. And then it took me years before even I, even after going through school, like, oh, you actually can talk about. And it was really a lot of the kids in middle schools that taught me that. And that's why I'm in awe of them because they would come and say all these things. Wow, they can talk about it. That is Awesome. I just think we're in a better, slowly getting into a better generation of being able to talk about mental illness. Sure, sure. Well, I know that this could be in a completely different episode, so we won't necessarily talk about it at length, but we are dealing with this timely post-COVID world where we know that adolescents have or thought about and have committed suicide at a much higher rate because of isolation. Yes. That we have to, as a society and a community, continue to shine the light where the, where the darkness is yes. so that they know that there is light and that there is a way out and that there is right. tomorrow and that there are people. And Helen, I, I know that you have helped thousands of students over your lifetime as a counselor and on their behalf, I thank you for everything you've done. I bet you see people periodically that come up to you and know you and remember you. And yeah, I do. I run into some like at the bank and they're like adults now and I'm, mm-hmm. they still recognize me, but I don't recognize them. That's because you look, you so absolutely, <laughs> you look the same. That's why you probably <laughs> look exactly the same. So they're like, I'm like, oh my God. And you know, here they are like, working at the bank. and Oh my God, this is so awesome. Thank you. So, how sweet. Yes. Well, on all of their behalf, I again, thank you so much. I know that you wanted to share a couple of I resources do. So, before we head out of here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are apps that you download, free apps. One is called New Mexico Connect. It's NM Connect. It's a great one. You can, what I love about it is it's easy to navigate. You can talk to someone 24 hours, seven days a week. You can also text someone. It's called a warm line and kids like to text. So you can Uh also text. That's a limited time though. Like it's to 11 at night or something like that. I'm not hundred percent sure anymore, but I know kids like texting. So it's nice that way. And another one, it's through the Jason Foundation, which is the program we use to do a lot of the teaching of suicide prevention. And that app is called A Friend Asks. And that one also super easy to navigate. And I like it also because it lists warning signs. It lists what to do. And then it also, it has a thing. If you're feeling suicidal, tap this button and you can tap it and talk to someone right away. So there's those two. And then everyone should be, I think it's this summer where they're doing the universal 988 number Uh that Right. off your phone, right? which I think will start taking place this summer. Yeah. And can, that you, re- be, can you repeat the second one? A friend? A friend asks. Asks. A-S- okay. A-S-K-S. Awesome. Okay. Perfect. So, the New Mexico Connect and that a friend asks, we will definitely put in the show notes and make sure we have a link to that because I think that that's so valuable to even just, that might be a great way in my opinion for a parent or someone who is worried about a friend or relative just to open the conversation by saying hey would you do me a favor and just download this on your app because you just never know who might need help and not even really projecting it that you might need help but yeah having someone so those are great those are really great yeah so hopefully people will put it on and i Pass those two on to anybody just to have, because even adults sometimes, I mean, like, what do we do? Sure. Someone tells me. So 
It's all there. And adults can use this. So it's not just for kids. This is for anyone in crisis. Great. Great. So yeah. Mm -hmm. Great resource. Those are really, really good. And I think just really clever apps that, that are, again, just comfortable to press the button and it gives you what you need and it gives people the ability to take that one first step that we know if they can take that one step forward, that it will, it will create that light that they're looking for. So speaking of light, we ask every guest on our podcast a question, the question that I'm going to ask you because it's so important to know how has joy found you recently, Helen? Oh my gosh, this is so easy. I love it because it's my one-year-old niece. Oh my goodness. There's nothing like a little kid to bring joy. She just brings so much joy to the family, to my brother, to my other sister-in-law, just a one-year-old. I just watched her at her birthday. I'm like, oh my God, look how we just stare at her and we're all (laughs) beaming. We're just beaming no matter what she does. Right, right. And so this morning, my brother sent me a little video of her at the restaurant. And again, I just like literally light up. That's, I think she puts you in the present moment instantly. And then it's just joy. Like, I'm like, oh my God, I'm like, I feel myself, even you asking that question, I'm just smiling Mm -hmm. from thinking of that, her. So she's like, yeah, she's found joy for me. Well, we have littles in our family now too, since the passing of Mason and they are my, you know, my yeah, my grandsons and my granddaughters and nephews too and nieces. I don't want to leave them. I'm not <laughs> excluding them either. But the ones that came, pat, you know, after Mason, they I pretend and hopefully there's some reality to it that he handpicked them for us. Yeah. The family that are in heaven bring these littles to us that we just we take all that love that we had and still have for our past loved ones. We just smother these babies with. That's love as we can. So what a sweet thing. And I'm so glad you have her. Yeah, same too. So thank you. And thank you for having me. You're welcome, Helen. It's been so great to have your passion and your knowledge about this and just giving us simple steps to start a conversation with a kiddo. You can be that change is something I think that's a really big takeaway from today. And you are so humble and you are so kind. And I just really appreciate you. Oh, thank you, Steph. I love playing tennis with you. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me too. Love it too. All right, family, if you feel that this episode helped you or that this episode would help a friend or family member, please share the Grief Sisters podcast. You can also connect with me, Coach Steph, and Dr. Angela on Instagram at Angela Gorell, G-O-R-R-E-L-L, and Stephanie Bullen Official. Our links are in the show notes on the Grief Sisters website as well. And as always, in the place of Dr. Angela, since she's not here today, I will end this podcast with a blessing for you all. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you. Don't forget to head over to our website, thegriefsisters.com. We have a free gift for you. It's a five-day grief meditation audio track that helps you manage anxiety. It includes a 10-page printable journal that walks you through each of the five days and provides a way to help you track each day. You can also find another audio version of the grief meditation track on episode three of season one of our podcast. We are also currently working on a series of resources and small group opportunities that will be tackling various phases of grief. These breakthrough resources will help you take steps to find the motivation you need to move through grief at your own pace, but move forward nonetheless. So look for updates on our website for those launches soon.
Also, please look for our Grief Sisters book club and support group on Facebook. And remember, it's a we don't care if you've read the book club. Join us anyway. All of the links will be available in the podcast descriptions. Thank you for joining us today, family. We are grateful to you and for you. Until next time, let's try to stay open to joy. Because seemingly, against all odds, no matter who you are or what your circumstances are, joy can always, always find you.